Center Podcast. I am Brian. Your host, Brian, that is. <laughs> I, am Alex. Host, Alex. I am Alex. I am Alex. We are here to deliver information. Yes. yes. Um, First podcast of 2019. Wanted, that's right. That's right. I almost wanted to make like, uh, I guess I could do it later, but like some sort of, we don't do sound effects or anything, but I wanted to create some big thing that's just for space news. It's just like space news and then basically... <laughs> Because that's what we're we're doing lately. Um, uh, I don't think I have any space news. Oh, I got plenty of space news. I remember reading something recently. Um, it's not even the rent. It was it, it was re, regarding water on Mars. I don't know if they found a lake or something. Yeah. They, Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Which, the fact that I just said that so mundanely is yeah, just casually. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's. Remember that whole you know period of time where we thought if there was water on Mars that'd be cool. It's not even <laughs> not cool anymore. anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's now there. the only thing that matters about Mars is that Elon just wants to get there so that he can die there. That's, yeah, we're that's just all. waiting for to find Elon on Mars. <laughs> um, the the craziest thing was just the other day, um, China landed a uh, probe on the quote unquote dark side of the moon. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, they okay. Didn't okay. bring a Pink Floyd album, so. Thoughts? That's because <sighs> I don't know why. No. Probably some uh, sort of culture barrier there. Um, but so yeah, that was cool, and um, we got more images from Pluto because a satellite flew by it the other day. What's Pluto? <laughs> Not a planet. <laughs> <laughs> some dumb rock. <laughs> well, and they the so they flew by Pluto with this. Uh, probe took some more pictures of it but really the destination of this probe was uh one of the planets or not one of the planets one of the bodies out there that Mm -hmm. ultimately was the cause for pluto losing its status because if you recall we uh we found pluto first and we made it the ninth planet and then we started finding a bunch of other things that were sometimes even larger than pluto so Mm -hmm. the question became okay are those that were kind of like in equal they were also in orbit right Right. What was um, the name for those things? They were, oh man, they're in the Kuiper Belt, and they are, oh, they had that crazy name. We had a whole episode on them. Yeah, oh yeah, I did a whole thing on them. Um, oh man, I can't remember the name. Oh, that's a bummer, because it was a really cool name. I'm quickly trying to scroll back. Yeah, like a, like a... Trans-Plutonian object. Yes, CPOs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so nice good find this good find. this uh planetary body or you know trans-plutonian object um that they found was actually uh or that they were going to take pictures of mm-hmm. they suspected it was and it turned out to be it's basically two plutos that crashed into each other and stuck together and you can still see two very distinct what it's not yeah, round dude, it's not round at all it's like a peanut it's like yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah isn't that crazy That's amazing we should uh um, we should let the people see a picture of that yeah uh hmm. i forget the name of it but if you if you google just put in space news and first it'll be nasa and then it'll be wandering bear center just i do agree two, that we the, should have same. some sort of space news 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 yeah. news, news news echoing exactly you know, thing at the beginning I like that. What um, beer are you drinking? 
Oh, I am drinking a Stone IPA. Nice. Solid. Yeah, I don't uh, normally... Their beer's expensive, but I hadn't bought some in a while, so I was feeling... My seltzer is cranberry lime. <laughs> Less exciting. So I actually did have a rant today. Um, I'll make it quick, though. It's not a new rant at all, but just a, a fresh take on it, maybe. What the fuck is up with YouTube comments? Hmm. I just... Okay, so like, I use... It's more, who the hell are these people? Who the... Exactly. I want to meet, and I'm going to describe a particular version of it. I want to meet this person and ask them, what are they getting out of this? So um, I use YouTube sometimes at work for music, a couple playlists, and just run through it. A friend of mine has gotten me into this K-pop. I can't believe I'm admitting this. Uh, <laughs> this K-pop Wait, wait, wait. Band. You haven't gone far enough where you can not take it back. Like, you don't have to go any further. Uh, you don't want to. <laughs> I, I, I'm owning it. <laughs> so there's this K-pop band named Blackpink. And they got some good stuff. Anyway, they've got K-pop in general has quite a, an aggressive fan base. Mm-hmm. And so the Passionate. comments in these videos, the comments on these YouTube videos are, mm-hmm. are fascinating. They're not necessarily mean or anything, but um, they do this thing where they like drum up business in the YouTube comments for uh, Blackpink. So people will post quite frequently the somebody's writing down and keeping track of the counts, the view counts on these videos. And then people will post underneath the videos, you know, February, 2018, this many, uh, March, 2018, this many, and, and just keep running lists. And like every day they'll update the list. That is insane. Really weird. Then there's posts in these videos where, so if you're watching this video on YouTube, you probably enjoy the band, right? So you're, you're, in good company, I suppose. I don't know, man. I see comments on videos <laughs> where you would you guess that the person hates whoever made that video because they're just yeah, shitting that's all fair. over well, whatever. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, so there are like drumming, like I said, like drumming up business for these bands. Um, just comments like, uh, you know, keep streaming blinks. That's what the fans call themselves, blinks. Um, keep streaming blinks 600 million views is just around the corner or um, people trying to get like streaming parties so this Saturday at 9pm UTC we're all going to stream this video and get the view count really high so that one I can almost understand because it's like a sense of community and I I can kind of get it still begs the question who the fuck are these people and why do they have time to do all this very much the next level down is, and this is not just specific to K-pop videos, this is every music video I've ever seen on YouTube. There are people who constantly post, who is watching this video in X date? So, who's watching this video in 2019? Who's watching this video October 2018? Anybody watching this video? Oh, like they're putting it out as a question? As a question to other people watching the video. So, let's say there's a like a 2000 pop, like a Britney Spears song, you know, came out 12 years ago or whatever. Uh, longer than that, jeez. Um, somebody will be like, you know, I'm watching this in 2018. Who else is? And then people will be like, me, I am. And that one just really. I feel I like YouTube, YouTube comments are kind of just where intelligence goes to die. It's just like the <laughs> la- that's the last stop. It doesn't really go any lower. Yeah, because ultimately it usually devolves into anger. Although I will say, I'll give my example. 
I very, very, very rarely ever even scroll down to that part of YouTube, like to see the comments. But you I'm know, attracted to it like a, a bad. Uh... I I last about five seconds and I just close the tab. <laughs> but anyway, um, so there's this guy Doug Demiro. He does a lot of car reviews and he's kind of he's actually huge on YouTube now and he's gotten um, his style is to kind of show you the stuff in cars that most other reviews aren't going to show you. So the finer details and the weird shit that's in cars. But you go down into those comments and yeah, you get all the weird stuff and the people just being angry for no reason. But then you do get people having good conversation about either maybe you missed this in the video and here's why Mm -hmm. it's cool too. Or, Hey, this feature is also on this car and explains, you know, so there are some, there are some good things that I've come across, but it's, you got to look. You really got to look. <laughs> yeah, you do. And I'll tell you, the one place to look, if you ever need positivity, out of all the music videos I've seen, or the comments that I've looked at or whatever on, on YouTube, the only video with zero negativity, mm-hmm. Calling All Angels by Train. What? <laughs> I swear to God, not a single negative comment, at least at the time I How was How do you looking. know this? Because I love that song. And so it was in the... <laughs> There's a, when you, there's a I feel like when you log on to YouTube, it's like, latest K-pop, or do you just want to listen to Train again? <laughs> <laughs> there's a great family guy. Two options, guide. left, there's right. There's a great family guy <laughs> bit where Brian and Peter are in the car driving along, and Train comes on the radio, and it takes them a minute, but they're, you know, they're like, ah, oh, it's not bad, it's fine. And then eventually, I love Train. Brian, I love Train. <laughs> are there other songs? I haven't listened to that song in a long time. Uh, Drops of Jupiter. I've heard that. So, yeah. Head over to the... <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay, that's you know what? That's you enough. know what? I feel like you're the person in the comments trying to get you views the count I'm, up I'm, for a train's video. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a train conductor. What's your username on YouTube so we can go find <laughs> all your comments? <laughs> 1998 underscore train. Watching train now in yep. 2019. Yeah, who's that's me. Yeah, who's watching this in 2019? <laughs> it's lonely in here. <laughs> okay, All right. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Ten minutes. <laughs> All right, so um, I'll go first here. So I'm quite happy with this topic because, A, it's fun. Um, and also, I came up with it when I was definitely totally sober watching animal movies on Netflix. Okay. <laughs> like Planet Earth and Still... Blue Planet yeah, okay. and you know. So um my initial name for it was uh symbiotic relationships with animals or within animals. Oh, but there's okay. actually a, a better, more scientific name for it that's called mutualism or interspecies cooperation. Alright. Um, so I saw one example, obviously, while I was watching some of these shows, and then, um, so I thought, there's got to be others, right? And and so there are, and there's actually a lot. Um, But what this mutualism is defined as, I'll just read the definition, um, association between organisms of two different species that, or excuse me, in which each benefits. Mutualistic arrangements are most likely to develop between organisms with widely different living requirements. So you might... Yeah, you get two different species that are totally different, and they find a way to um, help each other out, basically. Right. 
Um, now, when you start digging into some of these, it's not as hunky-dory and easy to classify as it might sound. You know, it's not always like a 50-50 relationship where right, they're, right. they're patting each other's back equally. Um, some of them are, but others, it gets a little complicated. Um, so there's actually two primary types. This is really interesting. Two primary types of these mutualism relationships. So the first one, which is most common is called a service resource relationship. And then the second one is called, which is very rare actually. Um, and actually I couldn't find, as we'll see some examples that are strictly this type, but it's called a service service relationship. I'm sorry. So what got, was the first one? Uh, service resource. Okay. Okay. And service service, like service dash right. service. So, and service service is the much is more the rare. very rare one. Yes, okay. exactly. So within the service resource, the more common one, there's actually three different sub categories that you could you could call it out for so um the first one being pollination so an example mm. would be like plant trades um food resources in the form of like nectar or whatever uh in trading that for um pollination or pollen dispersal right so just think bees right uh bees pollinating a plant um and the bee gets to eat so there's that pollination relationship um this one is actually probably the most common of the most common is the cleaning symbiosis that's the one i thought and i know that's that and that's the example as we'll get to that i saw on tv that sparked this whole thing but um basically in a nutshell uh you know an animal cleans another animal and the one doing the cleaning is probably getting food out of it and then the one being cleaned obviously doesn't want to be dirty to put it simply <laughs> so there's the so you kind of you kind of see why it's called a service resource right the one animal's resource right. is getting the food and the service to the other animal is getting clean right it's kind of cute actually um just a little <laughs> all right this last of the three categories um i don't know if i'm saying this right zookery z-o-o-c-h-o-r-y zookery Wow. Um, right? I think so. Um, so this is going to be dispersal of, like, seeds by animals, basically. Mm. Um, so whether that birds happens... Eating. Yeah. yeah, birds eating something and or flinging them and, you know, whatever. However the seeds get transported by the animals. But the animal's getting food. The tree is getting its um, seeds spread. <clears throat> um so the service-service relationship, the second of these broader categories, the much more rare one, uh, is basically two animals protecting each other from different predators, straight up. I'll protect you, you protect me. Hmm. Um, but why it's so rare is because while those those arrangements certainly exist, and I'll lay out a few, it's never really just that simple. Like, there's usually some other sort of resource side of it happening, right, too. Right, right. Right. Because why are why do we, why wouldn't you just leave whatever you right? There's some sort of like that. That's what it appears on the surface is that it's just service for each other. There has but, to be it has to be like you and I are stuck in this situation for this reason. So right. let's help each other out. Right. Otherwise, somebody else could protect me or whatever. Right. Or I'd just um, <clears throat> yeah. Mm, that cranberry lime seltzer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'll start with the the example that I saw on, on TV first, um, and it's probably 
it's either this one that most people know or the next one. But this one, um, basically sucker fish sticking to the side of larger fish. Um, and That's so a this, service service? No, this is going to be a service oh, okay. resource. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I've got them each uh, classified too. Um, so the name of the, the fish, and there are other types, but the one that I checked out that's most common is the remora. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So they're like, um, I think they're normally, I don't know, about a meter long at full size. Just pretty big. Yeah. At, mo- at most, you know, they can yeah, be smaller yeah. than that too. Um, but basically they spend their whole lives clinging to a host animal, like a whale or a turtle or a shark or even yep. a ray. Um, and they just feed off of, it's different things, I guess. Um, the original theory, and I think they do this to a little bit, uh, is that they feed on like extra particulate that comes from when the host animal eats. So the shark eats a fish and, you know, there's some debris that goes throughout the water (laughs) and the fish will kind of feed on that. Right. Um, and that might be true to some degree, but I think what's actually happening is the fish is actually eating, like, loose flakes of skin. It's kind of gross a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Um, things like that and, like, things that build up on the outside of the animal and, and things yep. like that. Yeah, I I would I would venture to guess the same because, like, you can't really... Well, I guess you could count on... The shark's got to eat pretty regularly, mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. Never mind. Anyway. Um, it's kind of funny, though. They've been known to attach to other things, like boats... Um, and if people are diving, sometimes a fish will attach to them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, if you look at a picture of these things and maybe we can put one on the Instagram, they basically have this big suction cup on their head. Yep. Um, they just quite a long streamlined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They literally, when they're attached to the fish, you could probably, or attached to the shark or whatever, either miss it completely or it really is designed to be there. (laughs) Now, isn't this, well, isn't this interesting you know mm-hmm. obviously they're the attempt is to have the smallest drag coefficient possible mm-hmm. which is just interesting that nature figured out that you need to you know in this sort of relationship being as little a burden as possible is advantageous because ultimately the shark is not having to do too much extra work carrying around the extra couple pounds that i'm sure mm-hmm. this fish weighs right um yeah, and, and so it's kind of cool. So the fish gets to eat, and then the shark, um, not only are they eating dead skin, but, you know, other parasites and and whatever that um, builds up on the, on the fish. Um, but what's also cool is that by being attached to it, it ha- and the shark swimming around, it's getting a constant flow of water over its gills without really doing that much work. I thought that was kind of cool. This feels like a, like maybe a 75-25. Exactly. Split. See, I told you, it's not 50-50. <laughs> the um, shark is getting shafted just a little bit. <laughs> and it's not like the fish stays in one spot. It can move around on the, you know, it might move to a different spot of the shark or whatever. Um, these things. Remora, he said, right? The yeah, R-E-M-O-R-A. Yeah. Just make sure it's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is interesting. Um, so they've done some studies between sharks and these, um, you know, remora fish, and it's almost like the sharks are aware of the benefits. Um, like the shark's behavior will change if they introduce, say you have sharks in a tank or in a, an area, and then you reintroduce the remoras into the system. The shark's behavior changes. 
Um, they start to slow down a little bit in the water, and even it huh. said they even start risking their own survival to allow the remoras to attach. So they'll like go out of their way to the point where it's almost dangerous to get these fish on them. So they're okay. Then that must, they're that instinctually must mean that, aware. That must mean that the parasites or whatever that they're getting cleaned big, off must are be a big deal. Fairly deadly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe maybe more like a sixty forty. Yeah, I mean, one fish gets to eat, the other one gets to not die. I don't think you noted this. The the remora, real quick, the suction mm-hmm. cup is actually, it appears to be on the top of its head. I saw that picture, and honestly, I didn't spend too much time looking at it. Is that true, though? Because when it, because it's, on, I think it's on the bottom, because when you, when the fish is on there, you don't want the fish to be upside down. No. Unless it's like a flounder where it's kind of backwards. Um, the fish certainly in this picture is upside down, hmm. but we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll just gloss over that for now. Um, so the second one, unless there's anything else you want to, uh, comment uh, on, on the remarks. Real quick, actually, yes. Um, you kind of squashed it a little bit by saying the sharks are acutely aware of the remoras, but... Mm-hmm. I've always thought it was interesting that, um, so there's another type of cleaning fish called a ras, W-R-A-S-S-E. That's my next one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, why doesn't, do you think every now and then the sharks just snack on one or, um, because it appears the answer is no. But I right, would, and I did I, find a, a sentence or two on that. And I think the reason is because of like you said they're they're aware of it and it there's other food so it's not worth it for them to eat the thing that's helping them out when there's other options but, i'm sure it happens i'm sure it yeah. happens but i was thinking if there's a if there's a plentiful amount of these cleaner fish mm-hmm. every now and then you can probably get away with just clicking you know, probably probably not one um, anyway. but do it too much and then they might not offer you that service anymore potentially um, yeah, so the next one then is cleaner fish, or the cleaner wrasse. I'm saying that right, wrasse? Yeah. Okay. So this is another example of a straight-up service resource. It's not really debatable. Um, and this is actually, this this is a, a cute example, actually. So the blue streak one, the blue streak wrasse, is actually the most common. Um, I guess there's different types of wrasse that do this, but... Uh, it's actually a pretty good-looking fish if you look at it. Yeah, I was gonna say, the wrasse in general, mm-hmm. they're quite a colorful group. When you hear about a fish cleaning other fish, you kind of get this dirty fish image in your head, I would think, but it's not like that. <clears throat> they're cool. Um, yeah, so of those three subcategories that I mentioned, just like the, the remora, they're in a cleaning symbiosis with larger predatory fish, usually. Um, and they groom them for the benefit of eating what they remove. <laughs> and then yep. you know just yep. like the other fish they they get cleaned um but what's hilarious is the fish being cleaned are referred to as client fish <laughs> and it's just <laughs> hilarious because um these client fish will congregate at a certain area cleaning station if you will and just wait for the fish to arrive it's like they've got these little spots they go to and then the rats show up and um they do their thing so it's it's funny though they don't just stay to the outside they'll even like clean inside the gills go inside the mouth and clean it's ridiculous 
<laughs> yeah, they like they'll go into what yeah they is, go in the fish. <laughs> what is otherwise in any other situation certain death. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so this is just adorable. A single ras. A single RAS works for around four hours a day, and in that time, it can inspect more than 2,000 clients. <laughs> dude, they have little shifts. <laughs> no, nah, dude, I'm, I'm out for today. I'm clocking out. I put in my four. <laughs> oh, can I work five, six-hour shifts this week? Yeah, I kind of need a Friday. <laughs> going to go over to the Great Barrier Reef and do some sightseeing. Um. Ooh. So this is this is kind of funny. So they normally eat like dead tissue and scales and other and parasites and stuff Small like parasites, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it says they are also known to quote unquote cheat and consume healthy tissue and mucus. <laughs> um, so sometimes they'll nibble at the big fish. <laughs> Skim it off the top. <laughs> exactly. So that just became a forty five fifty five relationship. Absolutely. <laughs> um, a tip, just a little extra. Mm-hmm. So, and then we already mentioned, but yeah, um, it just says that few wrasses have ever been observed being eaten by the predators and because of the reasons that we were saying. Yeah, I just feel like, and, and I'm, I'm on board with that and everything. It just seems like, okay, I'm a hungry fish. Mm-hmm. I know of a couple cleaning stations. <laughs> I go to cleaning station A and mm-hmm. I, I'm hungry, so I'm weak, right? I don't have the energy to catch my own food so i just i head over to the wash and wait for the, mm-hmm. one of those little guys to come out and yeah it's a bastard move but you know yeah it might happen yeah um, and then you just go to cleaning station b and c for a while <laughs> my thought though is a maybe the relationship is a little more complicated and the cleaner fish might be not that dumb it might be aware of yeah you know the shark being aggressive Probably. But also, like, um, Allie's talking. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Like, when a shark isn't hungry and you jump in the water with a shark, it's not necessarily just going to attack you for no reason. True. So, you know, maybe the sharks just don't go there if they are, if they are hungry. They'll get their food elsewhere. Yeah, I'm but sure. Yeah, totally. Nature's, I can see it happening. Nature's absolutely... Mm-hmm. smarter than me so <laughs> um so it's about to get real weird with the the cleaner fish um this is just a little random fact they are the first fish to ever pass the mirror test whoa yeah what yeah i guess so holy maybe crap. maybe a second source on that would be would be good but the source i found yeah apparently they passed the mirror test that's you better explain what that is but <laughs> so I guess in in layman's terms, if you put a mirror in front of an animal and it reacts and is able to identify that there's another, yeah, well, well, the, the, sort of the right. Big, the big part of it is also so like when they do it with chimps, they put mm-hmm. a red dot. They'll they'll put the mirror in front of the chimp, mm-hmm. and whatever happens, and then they'll put a red dot on the forehead of the chimp. Mm-hmm. And the question is, does it recognize the combination of the red dot and the image, and ultimately the actions that it does afterwards are you able to determine that the the chimp recognized that not only is there another chimp there but it's that that's me right right yeah because you could put a cat in front of a mirror and it might think there's another cat it'll realize itself right so it's a self-aware test not just a hey there's Mm -hmm. another fish test right right so that's 
I wonder what criteria I wonder how they, they used yeah, to determine. Yeah, that's true. There wasn't really much more information on it, so it could be something to look up. Yeah, that, but man, I mean, Pretty that's cool, true. Right? Yeah, that's wild. Um, yeah, one second. Um, so we got some more examples here. So this one, um, I think is, is pretty well known, but with, um, cows and other large mammals, sometimes pigs, camels, giraffes, whatever. Um, and then the bacteria that lives inside their stomach. So, uh, yeah. So I guess the, um, the cow or other mammal, whatever benefits from the byproduct that's produced by the bacteria, cellulase not sure exactly what they need that for but maybe digestion actually yeah i think it i is think digestion. the cows I, at least for cows i know or i shouldn't say i know but um i seem to recall that their stomachs mm-hmm. are like in order to digest all that grass mm-hmm. as you said they they need the help of right non-cow bacteria mm-hmm. yeah so and then the bacteria in the stomach basically you know gets a stable supply of the nutrients that it's feeding on um and this is not unlike your own gut biome that's happening inside your stomach right now right it's the same idea right yeah i think i think so it's gut floor at least on the surface yeah there you go um so this one's kind of fun uh sea anemones and clownfish i'm surprised i said that so well um so this this is an example of where on the surface it's a service-service relationship, but then there's kind of a resource backside to it. Um, so basically, the anemone provides the fish with protection from predators. Uh, so they're, um, they have like a stinging tentacles, right? Right. Um, and then the fish defends the anemone against uh, butterfly fish specifically, I guess, which try to eat them. So they're helping each other. Hmm. Um, so the, yeah, so the clownfish gets protection because it kind of hides in the anemone, but then when that one particular butterfly fish comes, it will fend. Butterfly fish, not lionfish? Um, the source I had said butterfly fish, but okay. um, I guess regardless, uh, I'm a not, specific I'm not type of fish that... Yeah, I'm not insinuating that I think it's lionfish. I guess mm-hmm. I'm just yeah, I'm not sitting sure. thinking, what the hell is a butterfly fish? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> I know what a batfish is. That's yeah, what came to my mind. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the other part of it that kind of gets to the resource side. So um, basically, the waste, the ammonia from the fish, that's part of its you know waste. It yep. feeds the algae that grows on the anemone's tentacles, which I guess is beneficial to the anemone to have that. Um, algae on there for whatever reason that okay. I'm not sure why, but um, so by yeah they're able to they're able to process it. Okay, so so yeah, so the the waste from the fish is feeding that, which kind of starts to get into the service resource component. Um, yep. So it's kind of cool. It's not so black and white, but they're defending each other. But there's a there's a benefit there, which makes sense because the anemone is protecting the clownfish from virtually all predators and the clownfish is protecting the anemone from one thing in particular so it's probably but that's fair that the fish right 
does yeah i guess else. the one thing that only yeah because hmm. i i'm gonna assume the butterfly fl- fish jeez the butterfly fish is somehow <laughs> adapted to uh you know eating these anemones yeah i guess it's it's one of its main predators right wonder what the clownfish does does it just get up in his well, face and start talking I, shit? Yeah, I guess. Scares it off. <laughs> just starts talking shit. <laughs> Butterfly flip. You ever see a moth fish? Way cooler. Way cooler. <laughs> um, okay, so another sea anemone one. Sea anemones are like the best friend of the sea. They're just friends with everybody. Um, so they get into these relationships with hermit crabs. Um, and this is... So- <laughs> Make it sound like it's just like happenstance. Like <laughs> those rowdy sea and enemies, they're just always stumbling hanging out at the bar looking for other sea creatures to get into antics with. Um, I just realized my the fans on my computer are humming, and you can probably hear it, so I apologize for that. Um, okay, so the hermit crabs. So again, this is service, service on the surface but then kind of a resource thing at the end um the anemones hitchhike on the backs of the hermit crabs so it the hermit crabs allow the anemones to move i guess to a different part of the seabed um and then while riding the they eat from (laughs) they eat leftovers from the uh whatever the crabs eating so similar to the first one we talked about Mm -hmm. um but then in return, it's protecting the hermit crab from octopuses, which like to eat hermit crabs. Uh, because, again, they have those barbed tentacles that are kind of stinging and, and whatever. So Really interesting. That's, that's twice now, I think, at least twice. Um, you have, like, a very general defense on the one end and a very mm-hmm. specific defense yeah, on the other end. Yeah, it's true. Um and it does say that, uh, you know, the crabs will fend off other creatures that maybe try to eat the anemone, too. So they're kind of protecting okay. each other. Now, I don't know why <laughs> the sea anemone needs to move around. Right. <laughs> I don't know why. It's like, hey, hey, I got to be somewhere. It's like calling an Uber. change scenery here. <laughs> it's a quality of life thing. It's not... The anemone is so evolved that it's gotten somewhat past the point of living solely for... You know, day to day survival. So it's just gotten to the point where it has the luxury of being able to, you know, go on a vacation or some shit. Does that mean the hermit crabs are like taxi cabs of the sea? Yeah, fairies. <laughs> totally. Hey, I'll protect um, you from octopuses for like a week if you bring me eight yards that way. That's hilarious. All right. Um, I'm going to do. <laughs> Two more quick ones before I get into one other nerdy part of this that I found right. that, that was surprising and fun. Um, so there's a lot of, actually, examples with ants and then other things. Um, so this one that I picked out is the whistling thorn ant in the blue horn something tree that I can't say. Acia? Acai? I don't think it's acai. A-C-A-C-I-A. Oh, acacia. Acacia. Yeah, that's how you say that. The acacia okay. bush. It's like a the, thorny tree yeah, bush yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, so basically the ant nests inside the thorns in exchange for shelter. Um, but then the ant actually protects the tree. 
um, from herbivores that want to eat the tree somehow. I think these ants are quite large in terms of an ant. What was the name of the ant? Sorry. Uh, whistling thorn. Are there at least not your standard like black tree ant or whatever those things are? Um, oh, they might get their name. There's something called a whistling thorn acacia. Oh. So I wonder if it's a specific. Anyway. Um, yeah. So they're they're kind of in a, a thing together too. Um, and the other, the last one I'll say real quick. Um, this one's ridiculous. Is the crocodile and the plover, and the plover is a bird. It's a small bird. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen this? <laughs> I think. You know, I, wait. I'm, the picture I'm thinking of actually is mm-hmm. a bird sitting on the back of a hippo. The hippo is. Oh. So there are tons, tons of examples of the cleaner relationship, especially with birds. So you're exactly, they'll eat the flies or whatever off the, Yeah. so I just picked one because this one is the most ridiculous. Um, Basically the crocodile finishes ripping apart an animal and it's got a bunch of meat in its mouth, like stuck in its teeth and it'll crawl over somewhere, open its mouth and the little plover comes around and picks the meat out of the mouth. Literally will stand. The picture I saw is standing in the crocodile's mouth, eating the food. Um, so obviously the bird gets to eat, uh, and then I, that raw meat, if it just sits there in the crocodile's mouth, you know, it could cause infection or something like that. I guess. Yeah. Um, so it's been, and the crocodile obviously can't get it out itself. Excuse me. So there you go. Um, but what's kind of cool is, I guess if the bird senses some predators coming or whatever because you know the bird's probably a little more alert in this situation than the crocodile uh it'll let out like a cry and then both animals will bail (laughs) what is out there threatening a crocodile Mm. to uh to to reference that well i've definitely seen videos of large cats oh you're right grabbing crocodiles which is the craziest shit you will ever see yeah, there's a video of like a leopard taking a caiman or something. Like swimming through the water and just <laughs> snagging it. It's the most badass thing. But like alligators and crocodiles are basically ancient killing machines that have remained mm-hmm. largely unchanged for untold millions of years. It is kind of amazing, isn't it? They're just so good at death that they're just And the bird is just birds in general are are also extremely old so it's kind of yep. cool that those those two that relationship's probably been going on forever bros for a long time long time <laughs> do you know my great 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 <laughs> uncle i do <laughs> i hate him by mistake yeah i thought that was so interesting because they always say with crocodiles that if you touch the the roof of the mouth or the bottom of the mouth when it's sitting there with it open that's what triggers it to snap yep so that's it, what I've heard. somehow this Crocodiles it sits on the top of the power head, though, right? to, huh? It sits on the top of the head, not inside the, the mouth. No, it'll go in the mouth and pick the meat oh, out right, from between right. the teeth. To get the meat, of course. Yeah, of course. yeah. So it's in there. The so the crocodile is smart real. enough to to keep itself from just reacting, e- eating that thing. Yeah, or the bird's fast enough. All right. So this part, um, just bear with me. It's fun, but. I wasn't expecting to find it, so I need to share it. There's been a decent amount of work on modeling mathematically these partnerships and these relationships from, like, a population standpoint. Um, So basically, 
high level, they use uh, differential equations to represent population growth. But, okay. you know, rather than doing this for just a normal population, they're considering the fact that there are two species interacting with each other. Um, so the first example of this, uh, they basically um, took something that's called the Lotka-Volterra equations. Ah, um, uh, yes, of course. <laughs> Regardless, their first, their first, bleh, first order, meaning they contain the first derivative, nonlinear, and what that means is that the change of the input of the equation is not proportional to the change of the output. Right. Uh, and then their differential equations, meaning that um, the equation as a whole contains a function and then a derivative of that function. And what all that means put together is that it's kind of just explaining mathematically how a system changes over time. It curves slightly to the left. <laughs> Actually, um, upward, upward usually, in the, probably in this case, but anyway. So what this kind of ends up looking like is basically like a common logistics growth equation, which if you look on a graph is just like a S-curve going up to the right, um, if you go left to right. But then you add in this mutualistic interaction portion of it. Um, and uh, it basically, this extra term that these researchers just come up with um, represents the increase in population growth due to that relationship. Um, but this first example of this being done, there are some limitations, which are kind of funny in the model. Um, it assumes that the population in question has ample food resources. So... They never go hungry, but then it also, this is a funny one, assumes that the predators in the situation have a limitless appetite. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just going to keep eating. Which is so, interesting because that may not, if we go back to the sharks. Exactly. That was what right? I was going to okay. say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's why, where that kind of, so what that means is basically it. into the function, you have to put in a Somewhere. mathematical cap, a limit yeah. so that it, yeah. otherwise it would just keep growing and growing and growing. So it's kind of, it's a very basic way to represent it. Um, so naturally, in 1989, David Hamilton Wright modified the equations, Damn. adding a new term to represent the mutualistic relationship. <laughs> <laughs> um, and basically what he did is he better represented the, comp represented the concept of the saturation. So um, basically it just can't grow to infinity. Right. Um, but yeah, I just thought that that was pretty cool and i didn't expect to find that when i was so doing my research. the outcome of this was that they could or they're attempting to predict without this relationship the population growth would have been this with the relationship the population mm -hmm. growth would have been that exactly yep dope yeah so it's um and i'll do it with graphs which is definitely definitely super graphic. nerdy and fun <laughs> yeah it would actually be kind of fun to, to find a exact example and look at it but dude that was always something in the early days of learning, I was like, you'd, you'd read about scientists and whatever, and you'd read, and you're like, I always wondered, like, what are they talking about when they say that they're trying to represent something with math? And that took, at least for me, probably too long to understand exactly <laughs> what that meant. And the fact that you can represent, act, you know, aspects of life, I suppose. Yeah, like it, physical, right. something you can physically see, you can represent it mathematically. Yeah. That concept is always, or was for a while, very. You need very good examples, to easy to grasp examples to set that kind of stuff in stone. Yep.
All right. Uh, I'm going to stumble through this. Um, <laughs> so I would, is not that strong. No, no. Well, it, the, the, I bought the uh, the mixer 12 pack, and oh. um, they've got some. It's all I should say. It's it's the IPA uh, 12 pack. They're averaging like seven percent alcohol content. I feel like beers are getting stronger. Yeah, especially in the IPA space. But mm-hmm. anyway. So, I would I would categorize at least in in one way a uh, man's relationship with birds as being uh, service re- service resource, <laughs> and in a lot of these cases, uh, more like a hundred percent to zero percent type. <laughs> we get to look at pretty birds, and the birds get to eat. Yeah. Um, no, I would, it's more like, so my topic is, um, early attempts at flight, but. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, the, as you might imagine, birds and watching, watching birds was probably how the idea got going. Oh, I see where you're getting that now. The, some of the early attempts involved a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship Unfortunately, the bird usually died in this relationship, but, you know, we would, we would take their feathers and glue them onto ourselves and jump off towers. No way. That actually happened? <laughs> oh, yeah. What the <laughs> fuck? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but the one thing that comes to my mind is I'm pretty sure at one point there was a guy who made some sort of flying suit and jumped off the Eiffel Tower and just smash straight into the ground is that true i got you i got you covered all right right, cool a little (laughs) foreshadowing (laughs) um but when i was originally thinking about this topic like that's what i was really thinking about was the relationship between man and bird at first like sometimes we were you know we were the scavengers initially you know we would rely on not necessarily a bird kill but like if a lion killed something we would Mm -hmm. wait for the lion to do the killing and then we would rush in with a group of us and steal a kill. Um, and so just watching animals was what I was thinking about at the time. And then so naturally we would see birds and we'd see them flying and we'd go, man, that looks sweet. <laughs> and uh, so I think I think the desire to fly has probably been something that is like really deeply rooted for probably a million years at this point. Um hmm. So then I wanted to look up, uh, you know, how did people go about attempting this? And it started off funny and quickly got sad. Yeah, I can. I, I was kind of sad even just saying the whole thing about the guy. Yeah, jumping. so <laughs> it's, it's kind of a in- weird topic in that sense because, I mean, these people ultimately put everything on the line for this desire. So I, I think that just speaks to how strong it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, to want to fly and, and probably also a little bit of, of wanting to be the first person to fly successfully and come to mm-hmm. the ground and give the middle finger to everybody who said you couldn't do it. Right. So, yeah, it's probably a big part of it. It's probably a big part of it. So, yeah, some of this, some of this is going to be a little sad, but we'll, we'll get through it. Um, so I suppose there's, there's been like legends and, uh, Un- non-provable history around flight 
probably the most famous example being the, the story of Daedalus and Icarus. So that is the story of an Athenian inventor, uh, just Renaissance, well, not quite Renaissance, you know, too, too early for that. But, you know, if, if he were in the Renaissance, he would have been a Renaissance man. Um, so Daedalus is the father, Icarus is the son. I'll skip over a bunch of the, it's quite actually a long story, but ultimately either they're trapped in a tower or or have been sent to the tower. They're trapped in the tower, goes the main story. Whether they are hiding there from the king or the king involved in the story put them there, I, I guess is somewhat up for debate. But um, Daedalus is uh, an inventor and, and it's quite handy. And he ends up uh, creating um, a set of wings or to ultimately two sets of wings using twine feathers and wax. And he attaches them to his arms and the story goes, he's, he's able to flap his arms and, and fly like a bird. So he builds another set of these wings, gives them to his son, and they're going to escape the tower and the island that the tower is on. They're trying to, and this is in, you know, ancient Greece type area. So they're on some Mediterranean island and they're trying to get to the mainland to escape this king. Tells his son, you know, don't fly too close to the sun because the heat of the sun will melt the wax. But you also can't fly too low to the water because the dampness will weigh down the feathers. Wait and... a minute. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of plot holes man, going on here, but, you know. How close does he think the sun is that that's going to make a difference? <laughs> right? 50 meters versus 100 meters? Like... I can understand getting close to the water, but the difference between, you know, being 10 feet above the water and 20... You're not, not that like much close to the sun. No. <laughs> <laughs> so they um, they jump off the tower and and we'll just accept that they're able to fly. And sure enough, Icarus starts to see people down below and he wants to show off. So he flies higher and higher and um, melts. Wait, they're escaping? They're escaping. And he decides to show off. Correct. Okay, nice. That's that's a cocky Sorry. move. <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah, and it got him killed. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, he flies too high. He uh-huh. cho- chooses the upwards direction to be impressive rather than maybe skimming the ground like Top Gun style. Uh-huh. But uh, melts the wings, wings fall apart, and he, he falls to the ocean and, and drowns. Super uplifting story. Who is he um, showing off to? The people back at where he was escaping from? Random, random people that were down below. He just, but he I, fell I into the ocean. Were they the on other, a boat? It, it, that part of the story I think is a little <laughs> hazy. I think That's you'd true. also just imagine based that. on based on the whole sun thing, the distance between things might not be to scale. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a safe bet to assume. Not so much. Um, and yeah, the sun? so he he flies too high, mm-hmm. loses his wings, falls, and, and drowns. And it's a story mm-hmm. that you can interpret in a couple different ways if you want to pull stuff out of it but that's probably the earliest story uh that we have so what happens to the son though he dies and the father continues okay sorry the son was showing off yeah the son is showing off he dies the father continues flying uh to uh shit i forget the city he flies to a city builds a temple to the god apollo and does which is super easy right just build a temple real quick <laughs> and does burial rites for his son and the story the story kind of just ends with and the son died really 
Huh. Um, there's, an, there's another one. Uh, this guy, uh, King Bladud. B-L-A-D-U-D. Bladud, maybe. Bladud. 850 BC. It's a pretty short story, but he practiced necromancy and apparently made a set uh, of wings. What is that? A necromancy is uh, dealing with... It's, it's death magic, essentially. <laughs> oh, of course. Easy, right? Um, so one way or another, the story goes, he created a set of wings via necromancy. I don't, couldn't really discern how because he didn't. And (laughs) (laughs) uh, he jumped, he jumped straight off of a wall and promptly went straight to the ground and died. Wow. Now this one though is another, I, I put it in the, in the legend area because it involves creating the wings via magic. Um, but the yeah, that's jumping off the first part that's wrong with it right <laughs> but the jumping off and falling to your death part that is uh anybody can do that yeah anybody can do that and <laughs> all right i feel so like moving... if i was in a position to create wings via death magic or living magic anything i'd make somebody else try <laughs> it first just magic well it's funny you mention that uh because chinese emperor i'm not making this up wang mang <laughs> shouldn't have laughed uh recruited a specialist okay they they use the word recruited i'm gonna go ahead and suggest that it was not a voluntary <laughs> it's more like you are doing this now so they uh, they basically glued or bound in some fashion bird feathers to this scout and the claim we're talking the first century a.d here so you know maybe 500 AD, let's say. Let's mm-hmm. just go right to the middle. The story claims that uh, he jumped off of a tower, the scout, and glided about 100 meters. And then in 559 AD, another man named Juan, or Yan maybe, doesn't matter. Well, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter, but it was, <laughs> this is great, said to have landed safely following an enforced tower jump. The specific infant, I'm gonna guess that he was forced off of it. Uh, um, okay. Now the history books record these as successful attempts, but I have my doubts. And the reason that's that like the that's like the ancient version of pushing somebody into a pool, <laughs> pushing them off a cliff and expecting yeah. them to fly <laughs> or off a tower. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, and actually, there's a well, there's another spot. We'll come back to China in a minute. Uh, we've been talking China a few times these past couple podcasts, but they come up. They do. They did a lot of cool stuff. Um, yeah, so I, I doubt these were successful, but they would have been recorded as being successful because back then, or at, not not even back then, you know, saving face is something mm-hmm. that humans do. So even if that test was not successful, he's the freaking emperor, so he's going to say, "I want you to write that down as right. Like, <laughs> Cover up the body. That totally and write worked. That down. <laughs> it totally worked. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so 1496. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna jump around here in the in the time timeline a little bit. But 1496, a man named Secchio was attempting flight. Don't really know how, but he broke broke, geez, broke both arms um, <laughs> doing it. This one is amazing. 1507, John Damien strapped wings covered with chicken feathers and jumped off the walls of the Stirling Castle in Scotland. He broke his thigh. 
later blaming the lack of success for not using eagle feathers. <laughs> yes. Okay. Some chicken feathers okay. on the front. <laughs> It's like, oh, I, it's not that I suck at playing the guitar. It's just this guitar is bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that begs the question then, did he retry it with eagle feathers? I, I couldn't find out for him. Um, better but, or else that's a load of crap. Right. The next two stories, though, unfortunately, these are going to be some sad ones, would probably suggest that uh, he didn't try again. So the theme that's going to happen here when these people stake their claim that they're going to work on trying to fly, basically up until the Wright brothers, well, not quite that, or a little earlier than that, but you you alienated yourself because nobody thought you could do it. Yeah, you just sound and, like a crazy person. Right. And so, unfortunately, that that's how a lot of this went down, is, is if you didn't well, die in your attempt to fly, you got kind of... Well, in crackpot. Yeah, and so far in all of the examples, it's a matter of people attaching shit to themselves and jumping off of it. That sounds like craziness. The Wright brothers <laughs> yeah. and people that were competing against the Wright brothers were building machines. That's more right. relatable and more exciting and like you know what I mean? Like it's like it makes more sense if you think, Okay, I'm gonna build this thing that can fly and then I'm gonna get in it. Right. <laughs> so We'll talk. Uh, we'll talk the Eiffel Tower real quick, but first some context. Uh, we were talking. About... I thought you were going to give us more space news. <laughs> no, no, no. First, so we were talking uh, 500 AD, 559 uh-huh. AD. Took a large jump, but still quite in the past, up to like mm-hmm. 1496, 1507. You know, and another story I'm going to talk about is in the 1793 time frame. So fairly old. Mm-hmm. Wright brothers for. Uh, the, the turn of the century, well, actually, mm. uh, from 18 to 19, was when flight, like machined flight, started to take off. The Wright brothers yeah. were about 1903-ish. Mm-hmm. So the Eiffel Tower thing happened in 1912. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed, man. Oh, no. Yeah. That's, that's actually sad now. It's kind of sad. So Franz Richelt, R-E-I-C-H-E-L-T, Mm-hmm. An Austrian-born French tailor and inventor of the wearable parachute of his own design had one test flight of said parachute, and it's just that. I mean, he jumped off of the Eiffel Tower in February 4th, 1912, televised. They were recording this with oh, some of the no. earliest... Yeah, you can actually... Yeah, you're you right, can, you're right. You can That's, Google this. Yeah, you can watch it. You can watch it. So, so I didn't he, realize it was a parachute. Yeah, it's... That's and there's a little pictures. bit different. It, if you want to, if you want to look it up, uh, you can right now. So Franz, uh, R E I C H E L T. I'll, I'll not dig his name into the ground any further. Franz, spell it again. R E I C H E L T, nineteen twelve. So there's pictures and everything. He's got a fantastic mm-hmm. mustache. Um. Oh yeah, he does. Wow, that's a paintbrush. <laughs> And his parachute is not of good design. It's I would, yeah. I would there's not that. nearly enough surface area, basically, and it's more like it's almost like if you imagine the using the so the Michelin Man, you know, the Michelin Man with the the white yeah. tire dude. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's just like a big costume, basically. It's it's a man shaped parachute, and it's almost just like a, a canopy. 
kind of thing. It's, I mean, it looks like with air behind it, it should open up more, but yeah, it didn't though. It didn't. And so oh, yeah, no. he is jumped this up. A real picture of him on the ground. Yes, it is. Oh my god, it's pretty brutal. Oh my god. <laughs> so yeah, 1912. He uh, and and what I what I don't think is really. Uh, I couldn't really find. I think most people just out of respect, you know, like what the fuck was he thinking? 1903, as we're going to find out in a minute here, parachutes have already been thought up. Not necessarily. Okay, put well, that was going to be my question. Yes, manned powered flight, you know, with machines was a thing, but had anybody invented a parachute? If this guy had done his research, I would venture to guess that he would have at least come up with a better design. Mm-hmm. By, especially by 1912. Well, that's fucking crazy. Yeah, um, it's pretty fucking crazy. I mean, part of me just wants to say, though, that's natural selection. That guy yep. clearly wasn't that intelligent. No, I guess not. In a weird way, he was intelligent enough to come up with an idea and, and implement it, but yeah. never once stopped to consider... You know, maybe, maybe put it... A dummy in there and then chuck that off <laughs> why yourself it's actually kind of surprising how often that did not happen the whole dummy thing you'd think right? people would just get a couple sandbags and put them in the shape of a person to at least somebody used it. in one of the stories somebody used a cat instead of themselves <laughs> like so so yeah that one that one it's kind of messed up it is messed up i didn't realize it was so recent all things considered Right, yeah, that's that's the that's the really sad part about it. Um, all right, moving on to a somewhat sad, but has a good ending. Fifteenth uh, of May, seventeen ninety three, Spanish inventor Diego Marin Aguilera nice. jumped. Thank you. Um, practice that one. <laughs> jumped uh, with a glider, so as you rightly uh, foresaw, a machine rather than a. Mm-hmm sort of a wing attachment or something um he uh, it seemed it's a pretty well documented story he got um allegedly was able to actually create lift and get five or six meters additional height from his jumping point and glided across a river from the tower that he was or the wall that he was jumping from about 360 mm-hmm. meters wow so this is with this is in you know 1793 hmm. so um Again, he was inspired, <laughs> much to, what was that other guy's name? John Damien's dismay. This guy was inspired by eagles rather than chickens. <laughs> um, while tending to his animals in the fly. field. So he spent six years working on the glider. It was made out of wood, iron, cloth, and feathers. Ooh, that uh, he iron gathered... sounds a little suspect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he uh, he gathered eagle and vulture feathers by spedding, setting up traps with uh, you know meat and whatnot to trap mm-hmm. the birds. So on the night of the flight, he brings along his sister and a blacksmith, the guy who welded some of this iron together, um, placed his glider on the highest part of the castle, and in full moonlight, jumped off. And <laughs> apparently the glider... I don't know. I don't know. Um, probably to get up onto the castle with this thing in, oh, maybe. without being seen, maybe. Okay. Apparently, the glider had wings that flapped, so that's an interesting mix of 
intelligent you know smart design and yeah still being still taking from the birds but obviously it, what they're it missing really just is, sounds like he's trying to turn himself into a bird right but what he's missing is the fact that birds don't have iron bones so <laughs> their their weight to thrust ratio you should have, you'd think he would have known that after killing probably dozens of birds of to get all yeah. the feathers boy these bones are real light <laughs> that's probably a dumb design so um he crossed the river where he crash landed uh, apparently the flight was going fine until one of the metal joints broke oh no yeah so he crashed on the other side of the river and when they went over to to like find him and get him the first thing that he did was bitched out the blacksmith for i was gonna say welding. he had somebody else weld it right yeah yep so he <laughs> the first thing that he says after the they find him is something to the effect of like you fucked up yeah which i thought was great so so the, that's the interesting bitter... so he crashed but he lived and he was working. fine apparently yep Nice. But here's the bitter part of the story. It'll get sweet, though, in a second. Um, the town, like, turned on him. Uh, they thought he was, like, really? a heretic and a lunatic. I was and say, ended up think he was a witch. Yeah, exactly. Ended up <laughs> falling back on, like, you're some sort of demon, demon or something. And he ended up kind of he just became depressed and never attempted flight again and, and died pretty young. And oh, that's sad. Yeah, it's kind of Sounds like there could have been something there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so his, his occupation of being like a farmer clearly did not... He was clearly an intelligent guy. Mm-hmm. So his story kind of didn't really... Wasn't recognized for many, many, you know, 200 some odd years. But now he is called... Now, uh, just recently, in 2002, they uh, the Spanish Air Force dedicated a monument to him. And in more recent history he's been called the father of aviation in spain really yep huh that's kind of cool what year was this again 17 1793 okay and then in 2002 they built the monument um and the american that's that's recent enough where we can be confident in whatever records yes it it appears very well documented or or as well as it can be really Mm -hmm. yeah and then the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronaut Astronautics, excuse me, um, does recognize him and credits him with a flight of 360 meters. That's awesome. Yeah. Well cool. deserved, I'd say. Yeah. Um, another story and kind of similar. Um, 1811, Albrecht Burblinger <laughs> constru- constructed an ornithopter and what? jumped into an ornithopter is. Uh, essentially uh, denotes flapping wings, basically. So it's a machine okay. that has flapping wings. So you could have called the other thing an ornithopter as well. Okay. I was thinking some sort of rudimentary helicopter. Yeah. It, this one took, again, the shape of a glider that had wings okay. that, that moved. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy was apparently inspired by owls, and he was in a, in a, uh, a guild, like a mason's guild, and they like ridiculed him and made fun of him and actually taxed him because he would work on his glider. He was spending man hours that the guild felt he should spend on whatever work they wanted. Mm-hmm. So they actually taxed him when he worked on his whole project or his own project, I should say. Mm. Um, but King Frederick uh, came along and with 20 Louis, 
which is yeah. French currency, I think, mm-hmm. um, funded him. Nice. So then, yeah, yeah, so came along and funded him. So 1811, he goes to demonstrate the glider mm-hmm. in the presence of the king. Wow. And, and the king's no three pressure. sons. No pressure, no pressure at all. Pressure. The king and a large number of citizens are sitting around waiting, mm-hmm. but he canceled it, claiming the glider was damaged. So the next day uh, comes around, he goes to a higher location, something called the Eagle's Bastion. I don't know where it was, though. The king had left by this time, but the his brother, the king's brother, and the princess stayed to watch. And the part of the story that's a little bit harder to tell is apparently he he was. If I had to guess, they didn't say this explicitly, but he was probably pretty scared about jumping <laughs> off this wall. I would be. Yeah, don't blame him for so that. So the story goes that eventually they got tired of waiting because he kept, he kept saying, "I'm waiting for an updraft. I'm waiting for an updraft." <laughs> I'm uh, waiting for you all to get bored and leave. Somebody pushed him off, basically. Oh, no. Is how it goes. And sure enough, the updraft wasn't there. Um, so. He downdrafted? He, yeah, he, he went down. Oh, no. Um, he, I think he lived through mm-hmm. this, but he was, you know, from that point on, disgraced. Damn. So it didn't work at all. Didn't work at all. Yikes. What year yeah. was that one? That was 1811. Hmm. So that's, can, we can get moving here. Um, so that's some sort of glider slash ornithopterish, you know, uh, taking taking cues from birds type type stuff. Mm-hmm. One thing that I I totally going into this had no idea because I, I had no idea this was going to be a thing. Uh, kites, mm. specifically people attached to said kites. <laughs> so. Okay. The kite was invented in China, hmm. uh, possibly as far back as 5000 BC. Just um, for just entertainment? For yeah, just, just for, for entertainment. entertainment yeah. Okay. Um, they, were, they were probably leaf kites constructed with silk stretched over bamboo frames, the really early ones. Um, fast forward to 549, uh, kites made of paper were being used to... Re- send messages back and forth um both military and civilian Mm -hmm. i don't know exactly uh how the messages were sent i was thinking about that because you know the the kite is kind of stationary in the sense Mm -hmm. that it's attached to a a rope that you're holding so how would it go from one place to the other i I really don't know yeah Um, but that's Mm -hmm. that's what they said they were also used as scientific tools measuring speeds of wind uh measuring distances and then also the kites themselves i found i found two forms of communication sometimes it was said that the kite had some sort of message attached to it which didn't necessarily (laughs) make a lot of sense but then the kite itself could be a message you could send up one type of kite for one thing kind of like a smoke signal send up another colored kite for another thing Mm -hmm. and then um eventually it was figured out that you could attach people to these large kites and, and take flight and it appears it was first used as a punishment um, oh, yeah yeah so ancient china some sort of torture yeah ancient china um potentially 550 ish to 559 so same similar time frame as the first story about china um they executed prisoners by ordering them to quote unquote fly 
using bamboo mats. Um, what I think, reading between the lines here, what I think was going on was they were sort of a, as amusement for royalty. They would mm-hmm. take these prisoners, attach kites to the back of them, basically like really rudimentary parachutes, and they would attempt to fly from the top of the tower to the ground. Jesus. And obviously you might imagine how that went. That's really fucked up. Yeah, dude. And so, yeah, this was uh, thought, this is probably the first manned, quote unquote, manned flights was these unfortunate people being attached to these kites. And, yeah. Uh, I can so see the, fir- the entertainment in that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit was boring back then, I think. They didn't have a lot more time on their hands. Yeah, they didn't have video games and podcasts and whatnot. Right? I was thinking about the contrast, like, this project we have going of doing this show. Yeah. That guy's project (laughs) of building a freaking glider out of bird feathers. Yeah. Yeah, I've had that thought a few times. Like, (laughs) should we be building a glider, basically? (laughs) Definitely shouldn't build parachutes. No. No. And if we're gonna, we're gonna certainly test them with dummies first. Right. So the first, um, so while I was going through this, the, the kite thing, though, still, like, I was, other than knowing that the outcome would not be successful, it still seemed crazy to me that you could want to and expect to tie someone or something like a basket, similar to like a hot air balloon, to a kite and expect to go up and back down safely. But sure enough, um, Hmm. 1894, the first well-documented recording of a man lifted by kite and back down safely, it was a military thing. They built a a giant kite, attached Mm -hmm. a basket to it, and in high winds, sent people as high as 100 meters. Damn. I'm sorry, no, 100... I'm sorry, 100 feet, 30 meters, excuse me. Okay. Still, that's Um, probably scary. Pretty high. And an ancient high enough to die. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So in South Africa during the Boer Wars, they were doing this. They were sending people up to as scouts, basically. Um, Captain, B, this is one hell of a name. Captain B. F. S. Baden Powell uh, was sort of the pioneer of this. They used hexagon-shaped kites, and they were you know they were lifting people up. So I thought that was really wild that people mm-hmm. were tactically being lifted by kites with guns well um, <laughs> yeah i guess 1894 I, I, yeah you could you could have a gun yeah i wonder if that was their end game uh the like, stories why that would I was you reading, want why would you want to lift people into the air that way mostly for scouting so true you know they're gotcha. over there okay. and we're over here type mm-hmm. stuff um so yeah that's kites pretty yeah, I didn't even think about those. Yeah, I, that's, it was a totally unexpected thing for me as well. Hmm. Um, I got two more larger categories here. Or not large, but... Um, so, balloons. I My gut actually... I, I was thinking this would have been the kites. It seemed to me yeah. that like a hot air balloon... I was surprised, let's say, at how late in the game <clears throat> balloons came onto the scene. So the my first... Only, my immediate thought as to maybe why is that a kite is in its simplest form just a flat plane whatever the shape is 
Right. You could accidentally catch something of a shape flying in the air and be like, hey, I could attach right. something to that. Whereas a balloon, you have to specifically make that shape out of whatever material you're going to use, right? It's got to be not deliberate. Only, yeah, uh, totally. And not only do you have to make the shape, but what I was not thinking about at first was the fact that what are you going to fill the balloon with? Right, right. It's not like they're just going to make some rubber balloon and fill it with helium. Right, <laughs> right. So 1783, uh, September 19th, 1783, is the first mm-hmm. um, unmanned hot air balloon flight happened in nice. France. Nice, they were smart. Yep. Didn't put people <laughs> in it the first time. Good. And I'll, I'll, I'll add, uh, we're looking at the balloons and then remembering about the um, Eiffel Tower guy happened at the same time when I was preparing all this. Mm-hmm. So it almost was like I literally read about these two French brothers, uh, uh, Joseph and uh, Jacques. I'm definitely butchering that. Um, in 1783, they used dummies or just unmanned flights. And then sh- very shortly after reading this, I remembered about the Eiffel Tower guy. So I yeah. went and re- read up on him. And I'm just like, okay, dude, two French guys more than 100 years prior to what you were doing. Yeah, what the hell? Right, right. I feel less bad for the guy just because, yeah, there were there were a lot of other examples he could have yeah. used. Yeah. Within, because when I was first thinking about the Eiffel Tower guy, I was like, okay, maybe, maybe there wasn't much going on in France, flight-wise, and he didn't mm-hmm. go to some Spanish library. But no, that's not the case. Very easily could have just gone to the library. <laughs> Now, that's that's probably oversimplifying it. I doubt access to information was that easy. But anyway, uh, so the, the progress of the balloon world was like really fast. So September 19th, they send up an unmanned one. Less than a month later, October 15th, they are sending up people with, wow. uh, with tethers on the balloons so they can't fly away. You got confident quick. And then... Just over a month later, November twenty first, they're like, "Fuck that tether! Let's 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 do this." <laughs> Cut it. <laughs> <laughs> so with the king, uh, with King Louis the sixteenth, uh, in in presence, they uh, November twenty first, seventeen eighty three, they were like, "All right, let's cut that tether." And they actually had to argue with King Louis because he wanted to put a prisoner in the balloon as the first pilot mm-hmm. more just to protect the scientists yeah. the scientists the the guys the two french brothers they actually had to convince him for the honor of being the first I was ones say, to they, do they wanted the glory they want the glory yep yeah and did they get it yes they did nice and uh yep so they uh they did their thing and it was successful they they went up they went down no problem awesome good for them and then all was lost by the time Franz made his parachute. <laughs> yes. Um, and then last bit on the balloons is that they became weaponized yes. uh, 11 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine like those two brothers are up there. It's like, you know, they've done a bunch of flights now and they're kind of used to it. And they're just watching. And they, one of them turns the other. We could put guns on this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Dude, if you had like a bomb right now, that'd, that'd be perfect. <laughs> Right over this guy's house that I hate. Right. <laughs> Fly over there, actually. I'll take care of something. 
Okay, last um, last bit here. Uh, uh, it's just talking Leonardo da Vinci. So he um, he made a lot of flying machines. He made a lot yeah, of machines. Yeah, he, he sketched out. Were. Yeah, that's true. They weren't they weren't all necessarily. Yeah, he did it by by certain accounts. A couple of them did take physical form. Uh, awesome. None of them ever worked though. But it was very interesting. That's awesome. He. Um, this guy's really Leonardo is smart let's put it that way so he uh, he was studying and just to put uh, time frame around this we're talking um, 14 the 1400s he was so like 1488 he was drawing hang gliders and stuff so that's that's the relative hmm. uh, time frame we're talking about here so he was studying right. birds and, and watching birds mm-hmm. um, and in the notes that we have of his notebooks, a lot of them, unfortunately, were lost, actually, in the Library of Alexandria. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I've got that totally backwards. The library is way sooner than Leonardo. Um, why were his stuff? Why was his stuff lost? His stuff, there's a story around it, I believe. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a lot of his stuff, but we have some of it. Um, so he correctly anticipated a lot of aspects about flight. He noted the shape of the wing for birds. Uh, how they're how they're thicker up front. They've got a flat bottom, uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recognized pretty quickly after sketching out and just thinking through it that uh, humans under their own power, no matter what, are not going to be able to fly in the sense that um, just like strapping wings to your arms or something like that, or even a more complicated machine isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. The, the human power to weight ratio he, he recognized was was not sufficient okay gotcha um he also understood that uh this is a quote here an object offers as much resistance to the air as air does to the object was uh basically the translation of the quote that we have that was in his notebook mm-hmm. that was in 1488 ish newton would not publish his third law of motion which is you know for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction until 1687. So 200 years. Wow. Leonardo da Vinci was essentially understanding the laws of physics. That's pretty impressive. Not bad, right? Not bad at all. So he made all kinds of designs. Um, ornithopters, so things that mimic the flapping of wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, fixed wing gliders rotocraft and parachutes um his early designs were man-powered um but he's obviously as i said came to to realize that um controlled guided i'm sorry gliding flight was probably the the way to go and he obviously was right about that Mm -hmm. um and he actually did come up with a few spring-powered designs spring-powered so that involved the human multiplying the human force so imagine, imagine a, a flapping wing aircraft mm-hmm. where the human is tensioning the springs yeah. and then sequentially letting that load go. So the springs are what's flapping the wing. Mm-hmm. So the human is maybe turning a crank and is in sequence cranking down a set of springs that, when all done in a rhythm, uh, results in, in, in powered flapping of the wings. Interesting. That sounds like it would be hard to maintain. It didn't get built. <laughs> um, the ideas are cool, though. 
Yeah, yeah. And he, he came up with, uh, imagine like, uh, imagine a, a cone shaped, like a kind of a traffic cone shaped type thing mm-hmm. with a, a helicopter thing sticking out the top. Yeah, I, I can picture that. I've seen images of that one. Yeah. The way that thing was supposed to work was four people sat inside. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. And the power of the four people basically riding bicycles mm-hmm. using pedals spun that's the rotor. Insanity. Oh my gosh, could you imagine if one of those four people like stops yeah. know, carrying their load and just the thing goes down? Um, so in 1488, he did draw a hang glider and the designs and inner parts of it were fixed. It did have some control surfaces, so he even was able to determine... So if you imagine a plane, the wing, mm-hmm. only the flaps of the wing are what move. Yeah, the, yeah, the whole wing doesn't. Uh, the wing itself is fixed. So his hang glider had that in fourteen eighty eight. Yeah, and that's cool. so since then, um, apparently he tried to build that hang glider but never flew it. But uh, people have since built it and it flies. So he he designed a flying. Oh, that's machine. cool. Yeah, he he designed a working machine. That gives him a lot of uh, a lot, a lot of, of credit. street cred. A lot of street yeah. cred. That's um, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty wild. built it exactly how it's laid out. Yep. Cool. I mean, I'm sure they had to take a, some liberty. Some li- something yeah, wasn't yeah. detailed or whatever, but now here's the really wild part. Da Vinci's work remained unknown until 1797, so his influence from 1488 to 1797 was non-existent. So all the balloon mm. stuff, everything yeah. happened. All those other gliders, like uh, Diego, Diego had no idea. Interesting. Yeah. It's so cool that, like, independently, so many people wanted to fly. Yeah. It's not like it was just all stemmed from one one person, you know? Yeah, and I think, yeah, so I I think that speaks to just how much that, you know, people desired that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the whole Wright Brothers thing was happening... Um, the amount of people paying attention to it and like the competition that was going on and the excitement around it and everything. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I, I'm, I'm out of prepared material, uh, but I did, I decided to not go into the Wright Brothers stuff. That, that's almost an entire episode just by itself. I would, I would say so, yeah. But you're right. The There's competition, I mean, basically from like 18, 1890, the, the, the flight race began mm-hmm. and, and yeah, specifically cool. the, Specifically, the powered flight, you know, using an engine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of other people building machines. A lot of failures. A lot of uh, shadiness around stealing, stealing ideas, ideas yep. And, yep. and all that. Yeah, it's cool. Okay. Yeah, that's all I got. Um, let me double check. I feel like I missed. There's a funny little. See right here. Oh, uh, you know those little. Uh, this is it. There's this just that little toy. It's a stick with a helicopter blade, basically, and you just put it between your hands and you just spin yeah, it. Yeah, you spin it. Yeah. Four hundred BC is when that was Whoa. invented. What? So, and guess who invented it? But that's got a wing on it, like the Chinese man. That's wild. I have to assume that it came from looking at the. 
I can't remember the tree, but I know you know the the seeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. helicopter seeds. Yeah, it had to have is come that, from that. Yeah, what tree is that from? Some kind of willow. No, maybe not. But. I was just thinking either an oak or a maple tree. Oh, you know Probably what? Not. It's an oak tree. Is it no, an oak no, tree? no, no. Acorn's an oak tree. It's a maple tree. You're right. Nice. It's actually a video game that I was playing the other day that I was pulling on for that. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think that's it. I don't know if yeah, you have anything. Well, no, I think uh, I think that was that was pretty good. Hopefully, everybody enjoyed um, symbiotic animal relationships and flight. Some failed early... attempts at it, and <laughs> and and you know, feel sorry for Franz actually. Yeah, it's it's what's really it makes dark sad. about it too is the <laughs> fact that I mean. It was it was documented. It was pictures were taken. There is a really dark. I'm pretty Im- sure they've got the video embedded into the Wikipedia page. I'm they gonna do. go watch it when we're done. They do. <laughs> they do. Yeah, dude. It's. I was really conflicted about that one. Yeah, understandably so. so. All right, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Um, obviously, our website wanderingberrycenter.com. <laughs> WanderingBerryCenter at Gmail. Um, T-shirts, check them out. T-shirts, check them out on Amazon. Amazon. Yep. And we will catch you next time. Yep.